Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody all over the world. Checking in for Keen on our daily show with some of the world's leading authors. Uh, it's January the 11th in California, where I'm speaking from on the west coast of the United States. And uh, in our America-centric world, or my America-centric world at least, uh, openness is the issue of the day. Uh, lots of um, lots of debate, both on and offline, about this decision to essentially destroy Parler, the right-wing network, because Amazon pulled support for it. Of course, more and more controversy and debate also about the decision by Twitter to um, essentially eliminate Donald Trump's Twitter feed because apparently he is a, a terrorist, although I think many of us knew he was a terrorist um, before Twitter's decision and indeed before last week, uh, the unrest in Washington, D.C. That unrest, of course, is still on our mind. These images are now seared into our consciousness, seared into our brain. The, the barbarians arrived at the gate and uh, we're still not quite sure what to do about it and what to make of it. But as I said, openness is all the issue. How open or closed to society should we have when we have characters like this running around the halls of Washington, D.C.? So today we're going to talk about openness. Uh, Johan Norberg has a new book out. He's a Stockholm-based best-selling writer and political thinker. Open, the story of human progress. Uh, Johan, I hear it's cold in Stockholm, but I assume it's open. <laughs> it's open and we've let in the snow today, so it's quite, quite chilly out there. So, Johan, you begin your book, your very compelling book. Indeed, it's so compelling that I blurbed it. Um, I can't remember what I said, but uh, uh, like all blurbs, I said it was a central reading, which it is. Uh, you begin your book with the story of a man called Otzi, the Iceman, the, the guy, one of the first examples of, of humankind who, who walked over the Alps. Why is Otzi so relevant for your contemporary polemic about openness? Well, because, and thank you for the blurb, by the way, um, it was really eloquent and it was about why the world needs more openness uh, after this period of uh, both COVID-19 and um, authoritarianism around the world. So I, I really agree um, and, and thank you for that. I begin the book with Ötzi the Iceman uh, because it's one of the few glimpses we have into our human past, into the Copper Age lifestyle. What people uh, did, how they lived thousands of years ago. He died up in the Alps between Italy and Austria. And uh, But the important question is, um, 
why did he get so far and why did he venture out onto uh, those mountains and thought he would, would get further along? And my answer is that he wasn't alone, even though he walked alone all by himself, he carried the knowledge, the ideas, the creativity and innovation of uh, innovations of hundreds or thousands of uh, Copper Age people. He had um, quite uh, clothes, hats made of bare skin, waterproof shoes that some people think were made by specialized shoemaker. He had sort of medical tattoos on his uh, body and he carried so many different tools and weapons that uh, lots of people had must have been involved in, in helping him do that. And this means that- but, even uh, I, I get that, uh, Johan, but it sounds to me like he probably looked a little bit like this character here, who is not really a good argument in favor of human progress. And in fact, um, I compare and contrast some images of Otzi, which some artists have created, with another image from one of the rioters last week of a, a man with a beard wearing a, um, a Camp Auschwitz shirt. Um, again, not, a, not somebody who's a very good advertisement for uh for progress um could you clarify why otzi i mean these guys were also carrying a lot of stuff around with them whether it's him when yeah. in, in in his peculiar postmodern uniform or this character in his camp auschwitz uh sweatshirt what's the big deal about otzi yeah we've got both in us, we, we're double-natured. We're great at when it comes to cooperating and exchanging ideas and favors and goods and services constantly. Uh, but at the same time, we're pretty good at ruining it all at, as well. And I think they're both really part of the same evolutionary backstory. Uh, we became efficient and extraordinarily good at cooperating early on. Uh, we um, learned to really build a collective brain where we, uh, if someone stumbled onto a better way of doing things, we could all learn from it. However, we often did that, early Homo sapiens, in a small, tight-knit group, not always kin, but bands and tribes where we knew everybody else. And we were very worried constantly about everybody else. Because when we learned to cooperate that efficiently, we climbed to the top of the food chain. And it meant that no predator could ever threaten us again. And the only threat to us was another group that cooperated even better than we did. So we had to be constantly worried about us and them. Once upon a time, this was for reasons, but we've still got that instinct, even in a more peaceful, democratic, open world. Still, we're so eager to see what sets us apart from them and begin Ask to blame them, them for all the world's ills. Belonging versus perhaps a more global identity. In your book, you suggest that the real debate on this stuff about openness versus, I guess, closeness. Um, was was laid out very clearly by Fukuyama in his End of History and the Last Man versus Huntingdon's The Clash of Civilizations. Are these the two bookmarks of the debate, Johan, Fukuyama and Huntingdon? Yes. In, in 
Um, and, and today, everybody says Kuyama was naive and he thought that we wouldn't see more events, no backsliding, whereas Huntington was right about the, collab, uh, the clash between different civilizations. Uh, and they're still sort of defining works, even though they're both some 30 years old by now. Uh, I have the opposite take. I think that Fukuyama was basically right in his uh, his basic take and Huntington wasn't because Fukuyama didn't say that nothing more would happen and that we wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't run the risk of sliding back into authoritarianism what he said was that a system that creates some sort of openness democratic liberal freedoms for everybody is the system that has the greatest chance of solving new problems because it gives more people the ability to participate, cooperate, experiment. But and, when, uh, when, I, I get that, uh, Johan, but when Fukuyama was writing um, The End of History, and I think it was in 1989, or certainly he published in 89 after the collapse of the wall, there was a great feeling of optimism. Uh, you are an unambiguous optimist. In fact, your last book uh, was about progress. You're unambiguous, unabashed believer in human progress, we didn't have images like this. We didn't have characters walking around in Camp Auschwitz t-shirts, um, unashamedly somehow celebrating uh, the death of six million Jews. So what's changed since 89? Well, first of all, we had, uh, we didn't have that in the US at least, not publicly. Um, but we did have more dictatorships on the planet back then when Fukuyama wrote. So we've actually seen an increase in countries that have... I have a bone to pick with you on that, Johan. You, are, you make that argument in the book, but I made a movie called How to Fix Democracy. And I interviewed Larry Diamond, perhaps America's leading scholar on democracy. And he argues that democracy has been in decline since about 2009. So we don't have more democracies today than we had in 1989. Well, back in 1989, if you go by, say, Freedom House statistics, it's around 40% of countries were electoral democracies back then. Now it's around 60%. But I agree, in the past 10, 15 years, uh, we've had a backlash. We've seen a new authoritarianism in many countries. Um, we had hopes about Russia and China. They didn't come through. And in some places, Poland, Hungary, that were democracies, and, and even in the US, we've seen these uh, problems. And why did that happen? Well, it happens once in a while, because we're not just open, we're also closed. And we're very quick to start to separate between us and them and uh, to begin to long for the strong man, especially when we feel threatened. It could be yeah, yeah. You financial distress, strong, uh, could be pandemic. You, you mentioned the strong man, um, Johan. We had Ruth Ben Gihat, the author of Strong Men. Is there something very masculine about this nostalgia for community, for belonging? Um, why is it that, I mean, not, not everybody, of course, um, who is rejecting modernity is a male. I mean, we have this example of uh, QAnon, which is driven in many ways by women. But what is it about men that is, is making them so <laughs> resistant to the idea of openness and progress? 
not all men and uh, not exclusively well, maybe not all, men. Maybe not you and I, but there is a, a large majority, again, in America in yeah. particular, 60-70% yeah. of, of, of white men in particular were voting for Donald Trump, who you make clear yeah. in your book is uh is 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 specimen a when it comes to rejecting the idea of openness and when you look at picture like the storming of the the capital you think it looks like it's young muscular or not so muscular uh, men where but when you look at the at ele the electoral map it's old white men and what I think is specific about them is that they used to run the world, not just the US, but the entire world. And what has happened in the past 20 or so years is that more places around the world have begun to grow rapidly and more aggressions of culture or technology suddenly come from new places and new groups that they didn't think they had to care about. And within Western society, new groups, women, uh, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, suddenly make an appearance on the stage. And that is a threat to lots of people who used to run the world. It's a threat. It might not be an economic threat in every instance, but it's, it's a status threat. And then you need something else. You need to show your sense of belonging to prove your, your cultural superiority, if nothing else. Uh, Johan, um, you are... Uh, affiliated with the Cato Institute, which is considered, at least in conventional political terms, quite right-wing or conservative. But your embrace of, of openness and of progress is increasingly unfashionable within the conservative movement. Uh, we had Edmund Fawcett, the, the great intellectual British intellectual historian on the show, who, who's written two wonderful books on conservatism and liberalism. What is it about conservatism and openness? Why have conservatives lost their faith, their confidence in openness? Not all. People, some conservatives like you still embrace it, but many have given up. And again, Trumpism is, is a good example of this. Well, you know, I'm an outside observer. I'm uh, more of a classical liberal, a libertarian, just like the Cato Institute. Uh, but I, I've... Uh, partnered company with uh, conservatives in many instances and oftentimes when we had a common enemy and that used to be the soviet empire it used to be socialism and that i think explains what happened uh, because communism disappeared uh, and suddenly when you don't have that strong common enemy it was a threat to us who believed in human and economic liberty, but it was also a threat to conservatives who just wanted a, a traditional, uh, more of a traditional society, a homogenous society. Uh, then, back then, the threat to them also came from the government, from big government, from the state. Uh, but now that has disappeared and then there's a realignment politically because there are other threats that they see. And oftentimes they come from voluntary, spontaneous forces in society. Uh, it's trade, it's migration, it's cultural change, it's new groups getting equal rights, all those things that we as, as classical liberals and, and all kinds of liberals uh, like and, and fight for. That is now the thing that threatens what some conservatives at least 
think is the traditional and correct way of life. So suddenly we can't be allies anymore. Uh, and instead they want a strong man, a big government to protect them against all that dangerous freedom and globalization. Uh, Johan, um, you know, your argument's quite convincing if, if you're in San Francisco or Stockholm where you are or New York or London. But the idea of openness as an example, as an argument in favor of human progress, doesn't work in, in, in lots of parts of the world, as you suggested. Um, a couple of Sundays ago, we had four different authors all writing from small town America on the show, and they all report the same thing, the death of small town America, a, a casualty essentially of globalized capitalism. Why should the losers embrace openness? Why would they embrace uh, a concept, a dynamic, a force, which has destroyed quite literally their worlds, their towns, their cultures, their sense of purpose in the world. Well, there are winners and losers in any kind of system. So well, I that's guess not you- very well when you say it as a winner, we are winners, but, 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 but that's not acceptable from the point of view of a loser, is it? Yeah, so why, would, why should the loser believe in that ruins what they hold dear. Well, I understand why they wouldn't. Uh, but if you look at it and if you're trying to formulate a policy that would create more winners and more opportunities for more people, you would have to acknowledge that there are losers with any kind of policy. If you were trying to, for example, if people in small towns think that uh, trade has ruined the local industry, well, yeah, you could create tariff barriers, you can block imports and competition from other places. But what happens then? Well, it just means that you would not see the increase in purchasing power that comes with more choice. You wouldn't see the new jobs that are being created as you then begin to specialize a little bit more in a country like the US and, and climb up the value chain and create new and better jobs in, in those areas. So that's what you need to, to look at from a, a policy perspective. But from the individual perspective, uh, obviously that's not a comfort. Uh, some economists have said that the gains from trade uh, won when it comes to benefits and costs. But if you're the one, that means sort of when unemployment strikes you, it's 100%. It's not 5%. Um, but you would have to ask yourself, what is the for your local society? Well, it must be to deal with that, to give people new opportunities in the sectors that are growing and have a future rather than trying to protect something that we know is bound to collapse sooner or later. And if we don't do that on a regular basis, constantly, it's going to happen all at once when we have a major recession. Johan, um, I'm interested in your take on the argument from the left when it comes to the environment. We had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the British-based writer Jason Hickel on the show, arguing that less is more, his new best-selling polemic against capitalism, suggesting that degrowth will save the world. He wants to close down the open capitalist economy. How would you respond to, to those arguments from the left in terms of the environmental crisis? I think that's a 
very problematic perspective. And uh, I say that as someone who comes from the environmentalist uh, movement back in, in the days, um, because when probably, but at least myself, when we think about degrowth, when we think that, look, we can just consume a little bit less and then we'll we'll save the planet. Well, look at what just happened during the pandemic. We basically shut down the world for six months or even a year. Um, and what did that do to the environment? What did that do to global warming? Well, it reduced the total probably over last year, uh, the total emissions of carbon dioxide uh, dioxide by some 7%, not more than 7%. And it came at a horrible price, a global depression, around 100 million people were thrown into extreme poverty. We saw a growth of hunger as well. And that tells you that less Travel, consumption, production is not the answer because well, we can, we can hear so great, but... now, uh, Johan. Uh, there's lots of evidence that the slowing down of the world economy has actually been quite beneficial for wildlife and the environment. So, w w why would we not want more of that? That's right. When human beings do more and retreat and when we stay indoors, obviously we'll see more of wildlife. But it's not the solution for the planet's problem, problems in the future. Because then if we were to meet just the Paris Accords of climate change until 2030, we would need one pandemic like this every year over the next decade. And I'm sorry, but I won't accept that human cost. Another one of these in our lifetime. Uh, Johan, um, so we need something else. We need technology. Like we need innovation. Book, which you know, I don't agree with everything that you you argue about openness, but you do come up with some interesting um, fixes to the inequality and the uncertainty in the world today to promote openness. We had Scott Santons, uh, one of America's most articulate and persistent um, advocates for universal basic income, on the show a few months ago. Uh, you suggest that UBI might be relevant in terms of um, concretizing the, the architecture of openness in, in, in early 21st century capitalism. What's the big deal about UBI? Well, I think we're moving to a situation, obviously, you just mentioned the losers in a uh, rapidly changing economy where we can see tech disruption coming from any place. And obviously, then a universal basic income would be a way of creating at least some sort of minimum level for everybody to make sure that no one falls too far. And at the same time, you also make sure that people don't lose that benefit as they start working, when they start businesses, when they do something. And that's a problem with welfare. It disappears the moment you start working. So it's basically a radical margin tax on whatever you do, and it's a way to create welfare dependency. I happen to think that there are better solutions than a universal basic income because it's actually a very costly way of uh, handing lots of money to the middle classes and to the richest. We have ideas like a negative income tax, which would be a way to top up incomes of those on, on the lowest incomes. And if you don't have any income, you supply them with uh, resources in proportion to where they are on the income ladder so that at no point would they lose out out by by working more job starting a business something like that 
What's the core of openness, Johan? Um, is it the free flow of people around the world? Uh, last week, uh, we had Elliot Young, the, uh, the West Coast historian on the show, uh, talking about his book, Forever Prisoners, the disgraceful history, essentially, of American uh, imprisonment of, of outsiders. Is immigration policy key? And is, again, America failing profoundly on that front when it comes to openness? I think immigration is one of the keys. And when I look at historical civilizations, the more open they are to outsiders, the better off they are in the long run, because that's really a way of being open to surprises and not just people who work hard and, and, and to uh, start businesses, but come up with new ideas because they come from another perspective, from another tradition, and they look at our problems with uh, their eyes. And then something interesting happens. You know, the first uh, successful vaccine against COVID-19 was, uh, it's called the Pfizer vaccine, but it was really to uh, one descendant uh, of uh, Turkish immigrants to Germany and one immigrant from uh, Turkey who had their own attitudes and ideas and met the technology and the knowledge at German universities and started this. And in combination with U.S. big pharma, suddenly we've, we've got this solution to our yeah, problems. Uh, Nicholas when Christakis, uh, the author of Apollo's Arrowhead, uh, a Greek immigrant to the U.S. really stresses this in his book, Apollo's Arrow. We had him on the show recently, too. So in addition... And I think it's really a way of importing ideas. Stuff like UBI and immigration. Could you name, quite briefly, um, a couple of other policy uh, directives that you would strongly argue in favor of to maintain openness and promote it? in the face of the reaction against it, which we discussed at the beginning of the show? Well, this is something that doesn't sound terribly romantic, I know, <laughs> but I think some form of regulatory alignment between countries is quite useful because one problem with every country fighting over its own sovereignty is that you have uh, 200 different rules on how a wiener is supposed uh, to, to be. And that puts a limit on of innovation and possibility for companies to compete with our local businesses and our local monopolies. I'm sure that we somehow, in some way, can accept um, what's if a vacuum cleaner is considered safe in the US, perhaps we should accept it in Sweden, for example, and vice versa. That subtly opens up the opportunity for competition and creativity. And, and if you um, just uh, multiply that within most different sectors, I think we're on to something. That's an interesting argument. Um, uh, thinking about this issue of openness globally on an international stage. Uh, today, also, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, critiqued Twitter because of what she called the problematic Trump ban. She's certainly no fan, no friend of, 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 of Donald Trump. Is America losing its position as the international champion, pioneer of openness? Might it be the responsibility of, of, of somebody like Merkel to to take on the mantle, given the increasing dysfunctionality both of American politics 
and the inequality and alienation rife in American society? I think that's really what's happened over the last four years, as we suddenly saw a U.S. turning inwards and uh, abandoning democratic allies around the world. Other countries began to step up. We saw that in in Europe, suddenly taking a larger um, part in um, getting democratic allies to to come up with common plans. We saw the Trans-Pacific Partnership on Trade abandoned by the US, but the other Trans-Pacific countries, they stepped up and they signed up on it. We see that when uh, immigrants and uh, students are thrown out of the US, or, or uh, it's it's been the case over the last four years, Suddenly, uh, countries like Canada and, uh, and Europe begins to open up its borders and they benefit from it because it's really a way of stealing uh, talent from, from the US. So, yeah, we, I think that we, I, and I'm saying this as a Swede who, who's, a, who's a great friend uh, of, of the US, um, we need a plan B if America isn't open in the future. That's what we've learned under the Trump era. It's an interesting argument. And perhaps uh, uh, I, I've made this conversation a little parochial by talking endlessly about America when, in fact, we might have been talking about Sweden or Australia or Canada or Germany. Anyway, uh, Johan, your book, and I, as I said, I blurbed it, The Story of Human Progress, uh, Open, is, is, is an excellent narrative, a very convincing narrative of the importance of openness and uh, of the centrality of human progress, the idea of progress. Uh, you're in uh, Stockholm at the moment. In addition to your new book, Open, uh, you're stuck inside. I think the Swedes have a different kind of COVID policy to ours, but uh, you're still not really able to, to travel, at least internationally. What else should people be reading to convince themselves of the importance of openness? Uh, well, let me just say first, don't be worried if you think you're parochial by talking about the US constantly and not about Sweden or Australia or Germany, because we or only Denmark. talk about the US. We, we only talk about the US in Sweden and Denmark and Australia as well, uh, because you, well, the US has that kind of influence on the world. So uh, whatever happens there happens here as well after a while, which makes it really interesting to see wh what happens after the, the end of the Trump era uh, now. Well, what you should read now in this day and age of tribalism is read some opponents, please. Uh, I, I'm struggling with this myself. It's so easy to read everybody who shares your ideas and uh, comes up with uh, uh, views that flatter your own views. Uh, but you really need the opponents. Johan. Steve Bannon. Sorry? Who makes the best argument against openness? Steve Bannon? <laughs> Actually, I think that Steve Bannon is a very smart uh, proponent of, of a very tribal authoritarian uh, mindset. So, yeah, he, he's a person to, to keep your eye on, uh, eyes on. Earlier, sort of the trial of the world, because they're more like the megaphone. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think that Steve Bannon, I think it's important to follow individuals like uh, Stephen Miller, one of the few advisors of Trump uh, that's still around, a very dangerous, uh, I think, xenophobic tribalist 
nativist person, but a very smart and talented person who knows exactly which buttons to push to make people afraid of each other and stoke the, the fear and the, the tribalism that we're seeing right now. Well, we had uh, the biographer of, 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 of Miller on the show, and if Miller ever writes a book, he's more than welcome to come on and defend it and articulate his position. Uh, I think that's the first advice we've had on this show ever about reading either Miller or Bannon. So uh, <laughs> I, um, I admire your bravery, even though you don't agree with him, Johan. I know you're in Sweden. It's a bit chilly over there. So I wish you a very warm and healthy and safe 2021. Uh, and I look forward to having you back on the show to talk about openness and progress. We need visionaries um, and theorists like you who are still so unambiguously optimistic about the human condition. Yeah, I'll come back and tell you if I'm, I'm still optimistic in a, in a year's time or so. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.